this chapter, we're basically in the second half seeing that it's all about Saul chasing David. But something much deeper is going on. There's a couple central themes happening in this section of Scripture. One is that we see it's a character study of God. When we look at one like Saul, who's not trusting in God, and we look at David, who is generally trusting in God, we see reflected in their outcomes, in their behaviors, in their heart condition, something of God's character, something of what uh, the results are from trusting in him, if that makes sense. The second thing we see is that God protects and prepares those he has anointed. Those he has called, he protects and prepares. And we see in each passage a different aspect of how we can trust him in that place when it seems like, where is he? Or it's hard. Or we feel the enemy's attack more than we feel God's presence or work in our lives, right? So we learn, that's, that's the other part, is how do we trust him um, and that he's good. And so if you'll look with me in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 through 12, it's on the screen behind me, um, and a little longer passage today, so I will read this, but if you would stand in honor of God's word, and I'll read this aloud. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the, the, the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. You can be seated. So 3,000 young, able-bodied men are pursuing David um, with the king's leadership. They have the government resources behind them, right? David has about 400 to 600 men. 
uh, no uh, military funding, no resources, outmanned, outresourced, right? Do you know that it's really hard for a bear, fun fact, it's really hard for a bear to catch a wild goat in the crags, the sharp cliffs. Though it's much bigger, though it's much more powerful, it doesn't have the footing in the crags. It doesn't have sure footing. Saul's feet were on shaky ground, and David's feet were on a sure foundation in the crags of the wild goats. Saul is pursuing David, and last week we saw how David went from fear to faith in the cave of Adullam. Sheldon preached, if you were here, we had a guest preacher, and he preached a great message on how David went from fear to faith, how God in another cave had transitioned him. He did something in his leadership to transform David's heart from the inside out. He was fearful and on the run when all of a sudden he was telling people, I will, I will assure your safety. Because you're with me, you will be safe. Something happened in David that was a shift that day or during that time. And so we see that David um, is trusting in God. You know, Sheldon said, he said, I was on, a, on the SWAT team, and he said, it would have been really easy for me to, or for these men to find David where he was hiding. <laughs> you know, he's number one, there were 400 disheartened people who found David, and then there's these 3,000 men who are trained in, in the army in Israel, and they cannot find David. It was clear. God hid David. Jake said it weeks ago that God always protects his anointed ones. Brothers and sisters, God always protects you and me. And so um, in 2009 to 2012 was kind of a season, and some of you know my story, but it was kind of a season of keeping watch in the cave with John Jordan and Joel Repick and Galfua and some others. And what I mean is it was a season of a spiritual journey where we felt rather weak, rather powerless. And I know I personally, we were on mission together trying to figure things out, but I personally felt more so the enemy's pursuit of me than I did hunger and pursue after God. I felt my failures more than I felt God's presence until in time that wasn't the case anymore. That God started to quiet me with his love. God started to minister to my heart in the secret place. And one of the things that happened for me in that time is that I began, I was, I was watching these, doc, I watched this documentary on, on these monks uh, who spent their time in silence and solitude. I was reading letters by a monk uh, about intimacy with Jesus. And the reason for that was because I was coming into this place where God just wanted me to quiet my heart and receive what he wanted to give me. It was like God put me in a greenhouse and he hid me and grew me in that season. It was like he put me in a greenhouse. And, but we could be more aware of the enemy's attack 
though, right? We could fix our eyes on our enemy. And when the enemy's five times our size, like in this story, we need a big revelation of God to overcome our fears. One thing I could tell you is it's never healthy to fix your eyes on your enemy. It never produces healthy results in you, and it will affect your health adversely. And taking control of the situation doesn't help much either. This is what Saul's doing here, right? He's trying to take control of the situation on his own. Rather than trusting in God and repenting in his life, he is continuing to pursue David. Think about how irrational this is. This is a king of a country pursuing one man with 3,000 men because he doesn't like him. Pursuing one man with 3,000 men because of a word of God. Not David's ambition. Not David's word. David wasn't resisting Saul, right? This was a word of God that the kingdom of Saul would be taken from him and it would be given to, to David because David would entrust and enthrone God over Israel once again. And so that is the bigger narrative here, right? But Saul, as the Bible says, the, that God opposes the proud, Saul never repents of his pride, right? But this is way deeper than Saul just not liking what he's heard from God. This has to do with Saul never believing that God was good and never believing in who God said that he, Saul, was. Because he had a distorted view of God. At the beginning of Saul's reign, when they came to appoint him as king, he hid behind the luggage. And it's understandable to, to have healthy fears of leadership. I mean, uh, you know, you're going to be the leader of a nation. But the, the thing is, it was always rooted for Saul in never believing God was good. He never did trust in God. He never believed God. All through, if you read through this passage, you see that generally he disobeyed God and he never repented. So here he is again opposing God and his word by coming after David. The word was that David would be king of Israel in time. He saw, saw, he saw David's uh, favor with the people growing and he continued to grow in jealousy and fear. Brothers and sisters, we can't afford to have a thought in our head about ourselves that God doesn't have about us. Saul never believed in who God said he was. He remained under this lie that he wasn't worthy of leadership. He wasn't who God said he was. He lived in a lie about who God was and therefore lived in a lie in light of who he thought God was. He lived in a lie about who he was. But I've said, I said this about McCall weeks ago, though, if you remember that sermon, if you heard it, um, David and McCall, that we must not vilify those who fail in these stories, but rather take it as a warning that when we make choices to come out from under God's anointing, and live in our own strength or fix our eyes on our enemy and our, in our fears, not trusting in God, that it will go bad for us, that God has a better way and it's rooted in our relationship with him. What I'm not talking about is a loss of salvation. What I am talking about is when we, with an area of our lives, stop trusting in God and try to live outside 
of trust in him and in our own strength, right? And so this is what we see Saul doing. David, on the other hand, is trusting in God. He proves it, right, by not killing Saul when he had the opportunity. But there's something deeper going on in David, too, I would suggest, that this was a moment of pressure. And when he was squeezed, what came out was righteousness. Why? I think we should take a deeper look at what it looked like for David to, how did he trust in God in the, in the moments, the time frame, the period of his life before that moment of testing, right? I uh, recently saw an interview of an ex-devil worshiper who has turned to become a follower of Jesus. And in it, she said, you know, I used to, through occult practices, um, I would seek churches that didn't worship and pray. She said, you know, the ones that did, we would leave alone because we knew it was impenetrable. She said, worship was like the paint on the walls and intercession was the wall. She said, so we wouldn't even, she said, we wouldn't even try to go after those churches. But the ones that were vulnerable to believing the lie that God is not holy were those who didn't remain in worship and prayer. And we would look for those places to put curses on them. And see, this is the fundamental difference between David and Saul. The fundamental difference between David and Saul is not that Saul was bad and David was good. There's only one who's good. <laughs> There's only one who's good, and that's God. But it's that David put his trust in the one who's good. David put his faith in the one who's good. And we see this reflected in the Psalms. We see this reflected in his actions in this passage. And conversely, we see that Saul's trust is not in the Lord. And I was thinking about this like strategically. As David is considering, do I kill Saul here? Or, you know, I have this opportunity as men are tempting him, right, to do this. And um, I was thinking, you know, like if he did kill Saul, I mean, he would be at war with those whose allegiance was with Saul, right? So, like, there's that. Like, this would not secure him the kingdom, right? I mean, and if he, if he killed Saul, his men, some of his men that, that he had favor with might, might not trust him anymore, right? They might think, well, if he turned on the king, he could turn on me at any point in time. But you know that neither of those are the reason that David didn't kill Saul. It's clear. David didn't want anything to compromise his relationship with God. He was conscience stricken about the robe, brothers and sisters. He was repenting about the robe, his conscience was sensitive towards God because he had been in God's presence as a lifestyle. And we're going to look at how I know that soon. <clears throat> he wants to remain close to God at all costs. And he quickly repents about this robe, much less killing Saul or the idea of it. So David's in uh, a cave in En Gedi. Do you know what En Gedi means? Spring in the desert. This is a prophetic name. A spring in the desert. David is seeking after God in this cave place in his life, in the desert, in the wilderness moment here. The moment is a season of three or four years, brothers and sisters, of Saul chasing him, 
understand what this season is. This isn't a moment in a cave or there were two caves. Sheldon preached on one last week. I preached on one on this week, and there was like these two days that this happened. This was like, this was a season for David of endurance, right? How did he endure? How did he make it through? And so he knew spring in the desert, right? He knew his water source in the desert place. Recently, we were ministering to someone about a month ago, and she had an encounter with Jesus where Jesus showed her a vision. And in the vision, it was of a large wing that enveloped her. And inside the wing with her was a bright light. She was hidden and resourced. She was hidden and fed light, water. And you know why? Because she humbled herself in her time of need and came to the throne of grace and experienced God's presence. And that's how it started, right? God, God pricked her heart to come to me and I will help you in your time of need. And then she encountered the Lord in this powerful way. Brothers and sisters, there's a verse for that. That he who abides in the shadow of the Almighty will dwell in the shelter of the Most High. She was experiencing this. This is what David was experiencing in En Gedi. We see at face value caves and being hunted, but the reality is he is feeding on a higher source. He is living from God's water of life. He was being transformed and learning how to strengthen himself in the Lord. He was being protected by the Lord and prepared as his anointed one. Protected and prepared in that season. On his preparation, did you know that it was 14 years between David's anointing and David's appointing? Now that's a biblically significant number because seven is the number of fullness. It's the number of completion. It's the number of perfection, right? And so we see God use these numbers very specifically in the Old Testament more than once. I'll share one with you. It's when Job loses all of his livestock. It says that he lost 7,000 livestock in a time of immense suffering. But in the last chapter of Job, God restored to him 14,000 livestock. So he lost seven, and he was restored a double portion. I propose that David is experiencing a double portion anointing in the preparation place of 14 years. Now, I want to explain double portion. I want to demystify that. What I'm explaining is that God wanted to dig a well of anointing so deep in David to be able to carry the Spirit of God on that he wanted to pour out without measure, so to speak. What I mean is that he was preparing him to be the king of a nation for the sake of that nation. Do you understand that when God prepares you, when he anoints you and he appoints you for whatever sphere of leadership is true of your life, he will give you what you need for it. For David, this was a big task. And so there was a preparation place of 14 years symbolic of this kind of double anointing, this kind of impossible 
gift from God, measure of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. You know anointing means the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, if I had to say it in a concise way. So if you're wondering, well, what, what is anointing? What's he talking about anointing? If this iPad is the anointing on my life, aren't I glad it's not? But if it were, and you said, Steve, I want the anointing on your life. Uh, I can give you, I can pray over you, lay hands on you, and we can trust in faith that God can do something of a kind. This is mysterious in his kingdom, right? But we say at the gospel tab, you can't give what you don't have, but you can give what you do have. So whether it's in service or through the mysteries of God's kingdom, the laying on of hands to impart some kind of special spiritual gift, or whether it's I got healed from anxiety, so I'm going to pray over you because you're struggling with anxiety kind of thing, okay? But if you said to me, Steve, yeah, I want that anointing on your life. It's like, well, I have that to give in, in some respect. But if you said, I want a double portion anointing, I want a double portion of what you have. I can't give it. I don't have it. I only have this. I can't, I don't have two. I can't make two out of one. I can't do it. What am I getting at? I'm getting at David was being, this is only possible by the power of God. The anointing on us, anointed ones. You know you're an anointed one, right? You're in Jesus Christ. John just talked about the new deal. We don't just remember this table. We celebrate it, right? Because now we are we are uh, alive to God because of the cross of Jesus Christ. We are saved from death and sin to abundant life because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And now we are his anointed ones. The anointing on Jesus, we are under. Do you understand? So what I'm describing is that what only God can do by way of this kind of double portion anointing, this is the anointing on you and me. This is the anointing that was on David. But there's a preparation place. There is a cost. Yes, Jesus paid for it. But now we must surrender, trust, and receive what he wants to give us. Right? That's our part. That was David's part. My iPad went wonky because I'm flinging it around up here. <laughs> Whose fault is that? All right. <laughs> and God's way of anointing and appointing us is like putting a seed in the soil long enough for to hide it long enough for it to die. Because unless it dies, it will not bear fruit. Die, what do I mean die? Die to our ambitions. Die to self, our selfishness. Die to the things that are holding us back. Look, Saul could have repented at any time. And God would have relented. He might have still lost his kingdom. There might have been some circumstance consequences to the things that, you know, he hadn't repented in a timely way. But he could have turned and stepped back into the grace and truth of God, right? Only fixing our eyes on Jesus, not our enemy, not taking control into our own hands, but only in fixing our eyes on Jesus are we empowered and do we remain in his will? Can we remain faithful? But the question remains, right, how 
Do we trust in God in these dark seasons, in these wilderness seasons, in the dark nights of the soul even? How do we trust in God? How do we fix our eyes on him? Many believe that David wrote Psalm 63 in this, related to this cave experience in En Gedi. Psalm 63 uh, is a powerful passage of, and it gives us insight into how David lived around this season of his life. What was he like that when he stepped into that place of pressure, he continued to wait on the Lord and succeeded in the test. If you could put uh, the first verse up there. Psalm 63, verse 1 says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Remember in Gedi? Spring in the desert. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. You know, this could have just been physical, too. <laughs> but we also know from the verses hereafter that it's spiritual as well. But David is painting a picture here of not just that the fact that he's thirsty, right? But he's seeking earnestly after God. He's making a choice to opt in, to lean in in the place of thirst, to lean in in the desperation place. He's not being passive. He's not sulking. He's not feeling sorry for himself. He's not denying his circumstances and saying, everything's fine. It's all good. I'm good. We're good here. No, he is leaning into God. He's saying, God, I'm coming to you. And I'm saying, I'm thirsty. I'm not experiencing you. Things aren't good. I'm seeking after you. Because he knows a secret that those who draw near to God, God will draw near to them. Can you go to the next section here? Verses 2 through 5. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Brothers and sisters, he's recalling. He's remembering I heard someone say once, when you can't see and when you can't hear God, remember. Remember what he's done for you. Remember who he is. Remember that he's faithful. Remember that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. That he's faithful to his promise. He's faithful and just to forgive you your sins. That nothing can separate you from his love. And that he wants to pour out his love on you again. Look at this. Look at these next passages. I, uh, sorry, you can go back. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift my hands. I will be fully satisfied as when the riches of foods with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Brothers and sisters, he goes from the past tense to the future tense. He's saying, I prophesy. This isn't an oath or pledge to God. God, I'll praise you if, you if you do this for me. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's doing here. He's declaring, he's prophesying over himself. I will praise you as long as I live. I declare. I don't feel like it maybe. Maybe he did feel like it. I don't know. He was in a hard place. He said, I will praise you and I will experience again the richest affairs. Brothers and sisters, I encourage, we're, right now, we're, this is a, this is a I'm, I'm showing you how David sought the Lord. How he sought the Lord. Not just that he sought the Lord. He sought the Lord earnestly by remembering and by prophesying. He remembered and he prophesied. Prophesy over yourself. 
I will hunger and thirst for right. When you don't have hunger, prophesy over yourself the will of God. Right? And, I mean, asking's good too. He's prophesying here. Let's go to the next section. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. He clings and he sings. He clings. We can remember that one, right? He clings and he sings. He remembers and he prophesies. He clings and he sings. Brothers and sisters, it's good to memorize Bible verses. It's really good. But I'll tell you how you internalize them. You cling and you sing. And in the dark night of the soul, you cling. You cling to the word of God. You let that word get into you. You read that word until it reads you. You cling to that word until that word is so formed in you that there's a sense in which you become the word, right? (laughs) You become the word. The Lord, what I'm talking about is faith right now. The Bible says, keep yourselves in your most holy faith, building yourselves up in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the faith. How? Praying in the spirit. Praying, reading the word of God, meditating on who God is. Clinging and singing. I think of those songs that awake my soul. Awake my soul. Come on, stir it up. Stir it up. Lord, bless your holy name. I love you, Jesus. You are good. You are faithful. Lord, I don't feel it, but I remember. I remember when, when so-and-so gave that testimony last week because her story is my story. Lord, I received that testimony over my life. Lord God, your love is better than life. I bless you. God, you're the radiance of the glory of God. You are good. You are my light source. I will be satisfied in you again. Just meditate. Meditate. Meditate on this word. His words are spirit and life. He protects and prepares us. And we seek him in meditation on his word and worship. My main point today, brothers and sisters, is that he protects and prepares us. And we, excuse me, prepares us between anointing and appointing us. He protects us and prepares us between anointing and appointing us. So it's interesting because Saul later in the passage responds to David. And Saul says to David, I could find it here. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. This is what Saul says to David in response to our passage that we read this morning. So instead of David taking this into his own hands, I want you to catch this. The man who came to kill him prophesies over him a fresh word of the Lord. And 3,000 of Saul's men heard this and who it came from. 
Catch this. Do you see God, when we trust in God, how he grows our favor? 3,000 men are like, oh, even Saul. We, he just told us to come and kill this dude with him. And now he's prophesying he's going to be the king. Like, it's a little schizophrenic, but <laughs> they're, they're, they're like, oh, I guess this guy is the anointed. Like, you see God growing his favor with the 3,000 of Saul's men. And with the 600 of his men, they're growing in trust in the Lord or in David and fear, or excuse me, and favor with David. God will turn your enemy attacks into a fresh prophetic word. He won't just protect you. <laughs> he will turn it around and give you life. He will speak a fresh word over you as you trust in him. He will give you life in the place of enemy attack. Amen? But Jacob, you can come and play. They, um, there was no one who did this better than Jesus, though. <laughs> you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, it was the night before Jesus was betrayed, and it was in that same night that, that John led us in communion that, that Jesus spoke those words, that he then went out to pray. And he knew he would be arrested in, in a few hours. He knew that he would be killed in about a half day's time. He had prophesied about it several times. So that's the context of the Garden of Gethsemane, okay? You know, the word Gethsemane means oil press. It means oil press. And I talked about David when the pressure came. What did he do in response? Had he been cooperating with God's preparation over his life? Now we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says to his men, now this is, remember David in the cave with the men, the hundreds of men? They were watching. We see this Psalm 63. We see how David was watching. Jesus said to a couple of his friends, he said in that moment, he said, come and watch and pray. My soul, my soul is troubled even unto death. That's how dire his soul was in that moment. But what did Jesus do? Was he passive? Was he self-pitying? Did he take it into his control into his own hands and call on 12 legions of angels? He could have. He said that. <laughs> no. Jesus went to the Father. And he submitted once again to the Father. And he said... Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. And it was in that preparation place that he was prepared to go and be smitten, stricken, beaten, mocked, flogged, wrongly accused, crucified for you and me. Because when the pressure came, the oil that came out was pure. When the pressure came, there was no deceit in his heart. There was no deceit in his mouth. And brothers and sisters, all of this would be in vain if there was any, if he was not a perfect sacrifice, if at any point when the pressure came in his life, he had failed. This, this would not be acceptable to the Father. 
but Jesus as a living sac- as a sacrifice once and for all for us is acceptable because the oil that came out when he was pressed was pure why because he submitted to the father at every turn he trusted in the father at every turn he kept faith at every turn by like david seeking the father in relationship seeking him in prayer rather than taking control into our own hands, rather than fixing our eyes on our enemies. What if we were to remember and prophesy? What if we were to cling and sing? And in our context, brothers and sisters, right? This is in relationship with each other. It's in family. It's in being deep in the word of God. It's in prayer and it's in mission that we remain in him, that we cling and sing, that we remember and prophesy. There may be someone here who has never followed Jesus and you're hearing me talk to a room full of people who are following him and saying, Continue to trust in him. Keep the faith. Keep seeking his face. This is what he's done for you. Well, I want you to know today, if you are here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, that this table is for you. That he died and paid the penalty for your sins. He does not hold your sins against you. You are forgiven. If you would receive that forgiveness, believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will begin today eternal life, which is to know God the Father and to know his son, Jesus Christ. If you want that for your life, please come to me after the service or please say that prayer now. Lord Jesus, forgive me for my sins. I believe that you are Lord in the name of Jesus. We want to journey with you on how to take first steps in following him in that new relationship. Let's remember, let's prophesy, cling, and sing, and watch if he won't protect, prepare, deliver, satisfy and even honor us. You know, the Father promises, I will honor those who serve and follow Jesus. Amen.